Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is a great gift to us this morning, and I pray that you will unwrap it for us in your mercy, uh, that it would speak to each one of us personally. In your name I pray, amen. One of my favorite movies is a, uh, a movie called Gran Torino. Uh, maybe you've seen this movie. Uh, it's kind of a classic. It's a car, car movie, kind of. Um, Gran Torino is a, a classic Ford, right? Ford? Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> I just know what it looks like, and it looks awesome. And basically, the story is that there's this old guy that used to work in Ford. He's kind of retired now and a little grumpy, and he's got this young kid that lives next door who's kind of getting into trouble, and he tries to actually rob the guy's garage and steal the car. Uh, that doesn't go over very well with the, the owner. Um, but he's very, surprisingly, even to himself, wise. And he kind of takes this kid under his wing and he teaches him. He teaches him that a man acquires tools over time. You don't, you don't steal other people's tools and get off easy. Your tools are something that a man builds. And he begins to mentor this kid and the kid starts to work on the Gran Torino. And they form a bond well, the kid had no idea that by the end of the story, he would be the owner of that car. He was working on his own gift all the way along, and he had no idea. I don't want to spoil the movie for you about how that happens. It's quite a beautiful story, actually. Uh, gifts are like that. A true gift has the power to kind of transform you. A real gift changes the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think about the person that gave that gift to you. It forms a unique and transformational bond. And the gift itself then becomes more than just the thing it is. That Gran Torino is beautiful not just because it's an awesome car. It's beautiful because of what it represents to that young man and the person that gave it to him and why and how. Gifts are very, very powerful things. And I'm struck by our reading in Hebrews where the author says this, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Sometimes that's not so easy. And that he rewards those who seek him. Sometimes not so easy. You can believe that God is, exists, but if you don't know what he's like, it's almost irrelevant a lot of people believe God exists, but they don't, it, it, if they don't know him in this way, there's not a real knowledge. Do you know him as a gift giver? Do you know him as primarily a gift giver, as essentially a gift giver? Um, God gives, and we know him through his gifts, or we don't know him because we're either not receiving his gifts or we don't recognize them when they're given. The Pharisees were like that. They were actually not just ambivalent about whether God gives gifts, they were offended by it because the recipients of God's gifts seems to be the wrong kind of people. They, uh, they're not the right kind of people that are receiving God's gifts. The right kind of people that receive God's gifts are the righteous people. 
right? The do-gooders ought to be the ones that receive gifts. Actually, that's not really a gift. That's more like a reward. Um, That's kind of how they thought of it. Lo and behold, here's Jesus giving gifts to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and bad people. And that somehow is not the way it's supposed to work, and they're offended by this. So Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about the prodigal son, although I wish I could rename it uh, because it's not really about the prodigal son. It's about this profligate father who seems so liberal in his gift giving. It is shocking. Jesus tells a parable that exposes our blindness to his nature. And as we sung this morning so powerfully, the Lord has taken the scales off of our eyes so that we can see what he's really like. There's actually three acts in this parable. I shorten the reading a little bit. If you do have your Bible, um, either in old-fashioned form or in new-fashioned form, where's my phone? Um, You can open it up to Luke uh, um, 15, and I'm gonna allude to a certain part of the parable that I didn't uh, put in the reading this morning. But the first act is the act one of God-giving, which is the younger son demands. Okay, so what happens here is uh, the young son, for whatever reason, doesn't say exactly why, comes to the father and he says, Father, give me. Now that's kind of a request, but uh, you know that if you have children, you can hear the difference between, you know, give me and, you know, give me, you know, that's a little bit different. Um, One is uh, not bathed in humility. uh, this, this young son comes and he makes a self-centered demand based on a technicality, really, not on the father's character. He doesn't, he doesn't say to the father, I know what kind of man you are and let, let's talk about this. He just demands it because he knows he's owed it. This isn't a gift. It's almost like a legal thing. The son feels that he's owed, that he's, uh, he's treating the inheritance as something that he owns rather than an expression of the father's blessing. And so he gets it but it means nothing. The inheritance means nothing to this man about a relationship. What it means for him is a ticket to decadence. It's not really a gift. It doesn't say how the young man got to this point. It just says that he's there. And friends, you don't want to be there. This is not a good place. This man is going to suffer terribly because he demanded something from God that had no relational quality whatsoever. He was getting a benefit, and he used it to his, um, to his harm. So, and you can just see what happens now as a result of a non-relational gift. Upon receipt, he leaves for a far country. He's distant. He's gone. It's such a symbol of what's happening, what's true in this relationship. There's no connection to the father. There's already distance. Now he just kind of puts it on the map. He goes away to a far country. He's not around the corner where he can be seen or anybody else can see him. He's going way away. There's no grounding and meaningful relationship, and, and so he's gone. It's a logical extension of having no relationship, which is distance. And the result of that break in relationship is what I'll call disintegration. He disintegrates. What is disintegration? Disintegration is the unraveling of yourself. You become lost to yourself. You become lost spiritually, 
You become lost psychologically. You become lost to yourself. You become lost to your people. You're just less of who you are. You're scattered in a thousand places. Maybe you felt that way before. And so his life then becomes a result of this scattered or disintegrating identity. Here's a Jewish man with a strong patrimony, a strong inheritance, and where does he end up? He ends up in pig poop. Like, if there is the worst place you could be as a Jewish person, it would be there, okay? Jews and pigs don't go together, if you knew, didn't know that. Pigs are not kosher. Um, you're not to eat them. And here he ends up in about the farthest place you can possibly be, in some Gentile farm feeding their pigs. That's bad. He was gone. He is as far away from home spiritually and psychologically and emotionally and physically as you could possibly be. Skid row for Jewish people. No one gave him anything there. Did you realize that? He gets hungry, and he was even envious of what the pigs were eating, and it says in verse 16, no one gave him anything. Isn't that a fitting conclusion? He starts off in verse uh, 12 saying, Father, give me, and then he ends in verse 16 at the end of this act one, no one gives him anything. I, uh, I like a website um, that maybe you, some of you have heard of. I highly recommend it. It's called I Am Second. Who's heard of that website? Anybody heard of I Am Second? It's a story of testimonies. And they're very well done. And these are really incredible people. I mean, there's some awesome people. And by awesome, I don't mean, I mean, they live, they live, they live incredible lives and they learn things. It's like TED Talks for people who have changed through the power of the gospel. I highly recommend you go and visit this. I am second um, and just binge watch. One of the guys they feature there, and you'll see why if you go to the site, is a guy named Brian Head Welch. Brian Welch. Anybody know who Brian Welch is? Yeah, Brian, Aiden knows Brian Welch, right? Because he's one of the top 100 hard rock guitar players alive. And he plays for a group called Korn, and he looks like a hard rocker. I mean, he's got dramatic long hair and dreads, or, and, and he's got f over 30 tattoos. And I mean, he's a, he's a powerful-looking person just by looking at him. You can see he's been through a lot, and his testimony is so incredible. He's very articulate, very smart in the way that he is able to express what he went through on his journey to faith. Um, and you should just go and Google it. You'll find a, he's given his testimony a lot, but this guy was super successful. I mean, his albums were at the top. He was touring all over the world. He's with the absolute biggest bands. He was making a ton of money, and he calls this period of time a horrible dungeon. He was at the top. He said, he said, you can do anything you want except take help from anybody. He was drug addicted, suicidal. He had a kid he couldn't take care of. He was full of anger and despair, and he was absolutely out of control. He said, I test drove the world. I bought everything. I was never satisfied. He said, my life was in the gutter. The Pharisees would say, good riddance. It's where people like you belong. You got what you deserved. But the odd thing about this story isn't that this young man ended up where he deserved. That's natural. The odd thing about this story is what happens in Act 2. 
God gives. The young man comes to himself. I love that expression. It sounds almost contemporary. What am I doing here? <laughs> you know, eventually the pain got so bad. That's what it means. It hurt bad enough. And he wakes up when the pain's bad enough and he realizes that there's only one way out of this and that's to reconnect. You get to a point where you realize you have two choices. Pull the plug on your life or reestablish the relationship. Somehow, he knows that there's one person that still loves him. He knows that. All of a sudden, in the depth of his pain, he realizes that I remember something about my dad I didn't know before, and that's that he loves me. It's true. <laughs> She's very moved. So he remembers that his father is different than all the others that he surrounded himself. All of these people he paid off, they're not his friends. He knows who loves him. His father was honest and good and generous, and he remembers that. And very sadly, as I was thinking through the parallels to this story, you know, there are many people that don't even have that. He has a memory of somebody who loves him, and there are so many people that don't even have that which is why we're here at Light of Christ and why this is so vital because there are so many people that don't even have a reference point to the person that can help them. And so this young man, he hatches a plot. He devises this speech because he's afraid he's gonna be rejected. It's a fear of rejection. And it's an authentic speech. He means it, and it's an important speech. It's important that this young man is able to put into words the depth of his action, that it was wrong and that he's sorry. But oddly enough, the focus of this act two isn't really on his repentance. This isn't a story about the prodigal son's repentance. In fact, you'll note that the father hardly even hears it. The focus is on what God does because though he does give this speech, there's no indication that the father even listens. He's giving his speech, and he's like, yeah, okay, go kill the fatted calf, he's saying to the servants. He doesn't even say to the son, oh, I, you poor, you know, he, he's like already over the moon. It's as though the father had never really stopped carrying his son in his heart, ever. You get the idea that that father was out there every day scanning the horizon, year after year, waiting, hoping, seeking brings to mind that verse that Jesus, that, that Jesus said when he, when he said, I came to seek and save the lost. You get the sense that the Father's out there looking, that, that he was never really fully focused on anything else, but he was kind of always hoping that the son's vision would cross the horizon because when he sees him afar off, he runs. He runs to him. And the, the son tries to blurt out his speech, but the father's already way ahead. We know before that the father's already forgiven him, and he translates this forgiveness into gifts. He makes it real. And every gift that the father gives the son has one simple message, you are my son, and I'm so glad you're home. What does he give him? You can follow along with me. Well, he gives him hugs and kisses. 
the number one gift the Father gives is himself. That's the best gift there is. The embrace, the hug, the feeling of tears on the cheek, the feeling of the Father's beard, the familiar smell. You can imagine the being engulfed in the Father's embrace and realizing that that Father that has embraced me like this before is still here and he's still just the way that he thought even better. His Father gives himself in his humility and his joy and his celebration. There's no pride. There's no condemnation. There's no obstacle to overcome. There's no contract to be entered into. Nothing but hugs and kisses and tear, tears and joy and celebration. And then the next thing the Father gives is authority, and I love this part. I didn't notice it until the very end, and I, I kind of clued in on this. He gives authority in the best way possible. This son comes home, and can you imagine the father's delight? He turns to his servants and he says, throw a party, and they do. Isn't that awesome? This father is full of resource. He's got a lot of fatted calves. They're just waiting there for this moment. He's got property. He's got wealth. He's got means, and he's got people who obey him, and when he wants something done, it's done, and right now what he wants is a party, and they obey immediately. The old church father commentaries will call these the angels of the story. This is what angels do. And the Bible says that when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven celebrate. This is what happens. And you can imagine that every single time in the full weight of his godly authority, God says, go and throw a party now. And they don't come back and they say, well, what's, what's the expense budget for this? You know, what's my, what's my threshold? You know, they know it's to be extravagant. It's authoritative. God does this. God, uh, in, in this uh, parable, the father gives him a robe, a good robe, a beautiful robe, which conveys the covering of the shame. This man is ashamed of himself. He, he has reached the very abyss of shame, He's squandered, he's wasted, he's done things that he can't even probably put into words, and he's ended up in pig poop <laughs> in a Gentile land. He's dirty, he's smelly. I don't think there was a, you know, truck stop on the way home that he could bathe in probably. I mean, who knows what condition that he was in when his father wrapped his arms around him. He's probably not in good shape. The best robe covering the shame. A ring on the finger to symbolize sonship, a bond, the familial bond, the blessing of the father to the son that says, I confer on you your inheritance. Symbolically, through this ring, you belong. Shoes to symbolize resourcefulness and rest. This guy's shoes, if he still had them, were worn out and weary from the long journey he's been on. New shoes convey your journey's over. You're home. You've got your house slippers on now. A fatted calf as a sign of belonging to the family, of celebrating the young man's life, which you do at a birthday party. The point of a birthday party is to say, you're special. Your special day is special. Which I feel under great conviction about because I forget my sister's birthday every year, which I did yesterday. So she's used to getting a stack of belated cards from me, and uh, 
So I take this on myself, the moment of repentance. Um, and he gives the son a song of praise, a verbal explanation to the son and to his community. He doesn't just kind of let the son guess. He says it with his mouth. He said, you were dead, but now you're alive, and I want you to celebrate. He says, in, it's so emphatic in the Greek, this, this is my son was lost. This son that's right here now, this one was lost, but now this son is found. This special son. God's always so particular. The Father not only pardons sins in such a way as to bury the memory of them, but he restores what had seemed irretrievably lost, he gave back. Brian Welch has written a whole book now called, well, it's got a different title, but in this interview that I saw, he said the whole theme of the book is restoration. Brian Welch was so bad off and so scary looking but he had a friend who was a Christian that wasn't afraid of all of that. The bling, the wealth, the tattoos, the angry music. And this friend uh, invited him to church, and Brian knew nothing about any of this. He was attracted to them because they were sober and had peace, but he didn't know anything else about it. But the pastor preaching had a scripture up on the screen, at it, and it was Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he said, he said, it seems like the Bible was reading me more than I was reading it. And he said, look what I'm doing. I'm ruining my life. My daughter is going to end up without a dad. I'm, I'm, I'm corrupt. I can't control myself. I'm doing drugs. I'm at rock bottom. And he went home after that service and he did more drugs and he's there and he's just thinking about this and he said, Lord, the pastor said to bring everything to you, all the garbage, and I, that's what I'm doing. And he said, it's like all of a sudden I felt the presence of God coming into me and wrapping arms around me and it's like the Holy Spirit just washed over me and I felt a presence I'd never felt before and the only way I could talk about it was a relationship. He said, I felt like I had a connection with heaven. That's what this story is about. This amazing, transforming gift of God giving himself and the restoration of a relationship I'll go through Act 3 really quickly here. I just want to allude for it for a particular reason. Act 3 is the older brother. Now, if you have your Bible, I'll just summarize it for you. This guy's got an older brother, and he did nothing wrong. He didn't ask for the inheritance. He didn't squander anything. He stayed close to home and did his work and didn't complain, and he's really upset. This is the Pharisee in the story. He's offended that this younger brother, and you know how younger brothers are, you know, didn't get what he had coming to him. That's what older brothers live for and younger brothers live for. I want my brother to get what's coming to him. And here this guy is celebrating and he complains. He gets so angry and he says to the father, I've been serving you faithfully day in, day out and you've never given me anything. There's no celebration, no party, no nothing. He didn't know the father any better than the younger son. Do you realize that? In both cases, there was no relationship. He was doing the right things like the Pharisees were, but he had no connection, no heartfelt connection. 
He says to the Father, you never, you never, you never gave, you never rewarded, you never celebrated, you never, never, never. And that's why he's offended with the celebration of his father is because he feels personally a disconnection. And the father says to him, you're always with me. All that I have is yours, as if to say, but you couldn't see it. You couldn't open your heart for it, Pharisees. You couldn't hear it because your heart is so full of anger and self-pity and self-righteousness. And the older brother, we don't know what happens, but he will have to go through the same crisis of faith that the younger one went through until he realizes that the father is offering him a gift, not a reward. This isn't a formula. It's not a formula. It's a relationship. So maybe you're like the younger brother, far from home. Maybe you're like the older brother. You're right there, but totally disconnected. Don't settle for ambivalence in this area of your life. Without faith in God as rewarder, as giver, you cannot know him. It's fundamental to have this settled at least as much as you can and to open your heart up to ask God for his gifts If you don't, you will have no personal knowledge of God. It'll all be theoretical. You'll know that God loves, but you won't know how he loves you. You'll know that God gives, but you don't know what he's giving you. You'll know that he exists, but you don't know whether he knows you exist. You won't have any personal knowledge of God to impart to others. You won't have a testimony to share, or there won't be power behind your words. It'll be abstract. Any gift that becomes disconnected from a relationship with God is nothing more than an idol. Do you realize that? And God, in his mercy, will destroy it until you are set free, even if it hurts very badly. That's because he's good. The same way a cancer doctor is going to go in there and remove the tumor if they're a good doctor, God won't let you idol worship your way to the grave. He'll destroy it so that you can know him as a gift giver. That young man had all the stuff. He had a nice robe, surely, when he was in his profligate days. He had bling, rings on his fingers, a nice car, you know, a good steak. He had all this stuff, but he didn't have it in the way that his father gave it to him, where it becomes a symbol of something that's eternal and good and true. Because what God gives and what he wants to give you more than anything else is himself, a living, personal relationship with him. Doesn't this sound like the father from Romans 8.32? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also give us graciously all things? He's not a no-sayer. He blesses us with feeling loved by him. He blesses us with knowing that we belong He blesses us by experiencing his generosity and provision, the feeling of joy, of celebrating with him. Even when things are really, really hard, God gives himself to you personally in the specific details of your own life, in all of its good parts and in all of its bad parts, so that you can see the hand of God reaching in at every moment 
and bringing you back home again and again and again until we arrive at that eternal home, which Jesus says I'm building for you right now. I just want to ask you, what's, what's your grand Torino? What's your moment of feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit coming in you like it did for Brian Welch? What's the symbol of God's restoration in your own life? How do you see God at work in the bad things and in the good things? God gives. It's offensive to some people to believe it. It's hard to believe for other people, but there it is in black and white. You must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. It's fitting to celebrate because what is dead, God brings to life. Amen.